Hello, and welcome to Good Questions, Real Answers with Monty Judah. I'm Kimberly from Lion and Lamb Ministries. This, of course, is Monty, and we are here to answer your questions about the scriptures, about anything that you've heard that is confusing to you regarding following the Torah, following the whole Bible, and we want to get started right away, Monty. We've got questions just pouring in, and so we've got plenty to keep us busy for a long while. All right. Our first question is from Chandrina, and she's been watching our YouTube channel for more than a year now and wants to know this. During a Messianic service, is there a regular communion by taking a piece of bread and wine or juice? And what is the difference between Kiddush and communion? Very good question. That's a very common question when people come in new. Communion is the piece of bread and the cup that the church uses particularly to show the death, burial, resurrection, and they'll use that as a part of their worship service. Some churches do it weekly, some do it once a month, you know, whatever the order is that they decide to do it. That bread and that cup is unleavened bread. It's not puffed up bread, it's unleavened bread. And the cup that comes from, these are elements of the Passover. Mm-hmm. In fact, they, it's the Afikoman bread from the Passover, and it's the cup of redemption. It's the third cup in the Passover Seder. And what the church has done is they took the Last Supper, which was a Passover Seder, the Messiah, mm-hmm. and when he instituted the new covenant with that bread and with that cup, so they, the church, have adapted, and instead of keeping the Passover, the whole Passover, they just took those parts. And they pull those parts out, and so they use them as a part of the worship service, and they call it communion. Mm -hmm. All right? Now, the other thing that you see, which is associated with Sabbath, is you have a loaf. In fact, some usually do two loaves, and they're egg-twist bread, and they usually have sesame seeds or poppy seeds on them and so forth. And they're decorated to look like the manna that was on the ground on the hills when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and we ate manna. And so what they use is that's leavened bread. And then they use a normal cup, a Kiddush cup, um, which means holiness. And we thank God with that cup. We thank God for the joy of life. We take the bread and we thank God for meeting daily provision. In other words, God, you've given me daily provision so I can live. I have joy and daily provision from you. Mm-hmm. So at, usually at the beginning of Sabbath in a home, they'll observe a ceremony called Kiddush where they'll have a cup and they have the bread. They'll say the blessings over them. They bless their wives and bless their children and so forth mm-hmm. as a part of Sabbath. And that's called Kiddush. Yes. Now, Kiddush is done every week at Sabbath. Mm-hmm. and at at holidays. Communion is really not done by Messianics. What we do is we do Passover. We do the whole Passover feast with the four cups and the unleavened bread. And by the way, when we get to the point in the Passover Seder, then we do exactly what a Christian would do at communion, but it's part of the Afikoman bread, the special bread that was the, was broken in the mm-hmm. Passover for us. And we drink that cup, the cup of redemption, just like the Messiah did with the disciples. They are two really distinct, separate things. They're not the same thing. 
So most Messianics, now that they've left the church, they leave communion and that tradition and instead keep the Passover and instead keep Kiddush associated with Sabbath. I see. So I've, I've heard also some Messianics, even those that have been part of Messianic faith for a while, will explain to their Christian brethren, those that may be thinking about coming into Messianic faith, they'll say, we do communion every week at Sabbath time. They're trying to explain with this kind of question from a Christian, you know, do you do communion? And I've heard other Messianic people say, well, yes, we do. That's what that is. We call it kiddish, but it's it's communion. You would think of it as communion. That's not really correct. No, I, I I would I wouldn't ha I wouldn't agree to that mm -hmm. because the the cup and the bread on Sabbath is distinctly not about redemption. It's about recognizing God as Creator mm -hmm. and about saying thank you for our lives yes. and thank you for meeting the needs of our lives. That's what kiddish is about. Now, when you get to communion and you get to Passover, now we're talking about the Feast of Redemption. Now the emphasis is on the Messiah, not on the Creator. It's on specifically on the Messiah. It's a completely different understanding, completely different observance. That's a great clarification. And, but, but a lot of Messianics, when they come in, sometimes they're a little bit confused about this, and they, think, yeah. they slur them together. And a simple teaching on this, on what the Sabbath is versus what Passover is, clears usually clears that up. Yes, that's a great clarification. And I hope that helps all of our viewers with any confusion they might have between Kiddush and communion. Well, our next question is from an audience member new to the Messianic faith. Rada is her name, and she asks, she wants to get a menorah, but she's not sure which one. Some have seven branches and some have nine, and she's confused about that and would like you to clarify for her. Okay, let's talk about, uh, so you want a menorah. The question I want to ask is, what do you want it for? Do you want a menorah that you're going to light at your house for Sabbath? Uh, because generally we light holiday candles and Sabbath candles at those times. Did you want the menorah that is like, that was used in the temple, which was a seven uh, branch candle? Or are you observing Hanukkah? And you want a Hanukkah, which is a nine-branch menorah. Generally, for most observing families, when it comes to Sabbath, they'll have a minimum of two candles that they light as Sabbath candles. And that's a Sabbath menorah. Mm -hmm. A lot of Messianics like the three-candle one. And part of it has to do with the, because the candles have names. The first candle is called creation, the second one is called redemption, the third one is called restoration. And what we say and teach our children, only God is able to create, redeem, and restore. And so we recognize that on Sabbath. Now, the seven candelabrium is actually not supposed to be lit by us. That's the temple menorah. We can have the symbol of it. You can have a, a menorah sitting there. Some congregations will light a seven candelabrum for a congregation at a high holiday. But most generally, you don't get a seven candle. That's the temple menorah. For year at home, you usually use a Sabbath menorah or a Hanukkah if you're observing Hanukkah. And in the case of a Hanukkah, you know, there's one servant candle and then there's actual eight candles that you light. So it's really an eight candelabrium, but there's a servant candle, thus there's nine, you know, eight plus the one. 
So uh, hopefully that'll give us a little clarification yes. on menorahs and so forth. The, the more common menorah in the home is going to be the two or three Sabbath menorah, mm -hmm. followed by a Hanukkah for Hanukkah. Right. But you could have a seven branch as a symbol. You can. You can have it as a symbol. And a lot of congregations will have that for their assembly. Mm -hmm. But it represents uh, the temple menorah, uh, worshiping God in Jerusalem. I see. And then the Hanukkah, which is the really the eight branches with the servant candle in the middle, that's to, to celebrate the, the Maccabees' feast. victory. And right. The, the feast, feast of, of dedication. That's right. The feast of lights, as we sometimes call yes. it. That's Hanukkah. Yes. Well, good. So I hope, Rhonda, that answers your question. And anyone else who may have had a question about the Hanukkah or the menorah and which one is appropriate to use. Now, our next question is going to be a little bit more lengthy. All right. This question actually has to do with current events going on right now with the Israel war and the, and the Palestinians. Many people have sent this question in, so I've kind of put them all together into one question. It has to do with reconciling Genesis 9-6 to Luke 6-27. In short, Yeshua tells us to love our enemies and forgive them. How can we love and forgive the Hamas terrorists who massacred so many innocent Jewish people as well as many foreigners? Please help us to understand what we are supposed to do so that we can help others and do what the Bible tells us to do about this. These people who are answering the questions always end their question with, we want to obey the Lord and what he says. All right. So let's break down some of the commandments that the Lord has given to us. A lot of the commandments that were given in the Torah, for the most part, are commandments that are given to a corporate group of people. It was given to the nation of Israel. Uh, the covenant was established with all of the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so he gave commandments for them as a nation of people. And one of the things that became very clear, and this is evidenced throughout the scripture, that when their enemies come against them, that they are permitted to defend themselves and kill their enemies. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the Torah said, do not kill. Right. Well, that commandment is do not murder. Yes. Okay, on a personal level, don't murder somebody. But is, does a nation have a right to self-defense? The answer is yes, they do. By the way, do I have the right to self-defense? If somebody comes, attacks me, comes in my house, it's going to do harm to me, to my wife, uh, to my family members. Do I have the right to defend myself? Yes. Does that include that I could kill him? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's the right of self-defense. By the way, God believes in the right of self-defense. You want to know why there's going to be a day of the Lord? Because he's going to kill his enemies. Yes. He's going to destroy him. You know, you've gone far enough. I'm going to kill you. And by the way, there are many enemies opposed to God and also opposed to us. And so we have the right to defend ourselves. Now, when the Messiah came and all of a sudden he's talking about loving one another, one, he's emphasizing there is this commandment that you shall love your neighbor. Uh, as yourself. That's the second greatest commandment. Love God and then love your neighbor. Yes. So he's teaching the commandments. He's teaching that you should love one another. Love your neighbor. You know, don't go around judging your neighbor. Don't go around wanting to hurt him. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so that's at the personal level. So I'm not authorized 
to go out and exact justice on just anybody out there because God has specifically said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Yes. That I don't I don't get to do that. That's his business. That's his job. But at the personal level with me, I'm a Jewish person. And so I run into a Hamas terrorist. Do I have the right to kill him? The answer is yes. It's self-defense. To prevent him from killing to you. To prevent him That's from right. killing me. You know, God wants me to live yes. and, and he gives me the means to defend myself. The people that don't have the means to defend themselves, they become victims to it. Yes. God doesn't want us to be victims. He wants us to live. Yes. And by the way, if that Hamas terrorist wants to go that far, he just sacrificed his life. He lost his right to his life before God. Yes. And I am completely justified, completely justified in accordance with the scripture mm -hmm. to kill him. He's not my neighbor. He's my enemy. That is a great distinction. Yeah. Many people don't get. Exactly. And if the man presents himself, if the person presents himself as your enemy, there's a different set of rules on dealing with enemies. Right. Not the same as when it's just your neighbor. So on this question of we're expected to forgive, do we forgive the Hamas terrorists for what they've done? Um, Where does no. that come into play? No, we kill them. We turn them over to the Lord. We, we give them over to the Lord. Now, my brother, I'm told I'm supposed to forgive him. Mm -hmm. Even when he makes a mistake, I'm supposed to extend some of God's mercy and grace to him, and I'm supposed to forgive him. Right. But he's not my enemy. He's right. my brother in the faith. He's my family member. He's not my enemy. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm supposed to forgive them. Yes. You know, and just as, and by the way, I'm supposed to do it in the same way that the Messiah has forgiven me. Let me go ahead and just tell you, the Messiah has forgiven me for a lot. Mm-hmm. And I haven't run into anybody who sinned against me or harmed against me that my, of my faith and the brethren that even comes close to what I've been forgiven of. So I definitely should be forgiving, you know, other family members and other people. I should forgive them. That's what that's talking about. But, but when, you, when we're talking about enemies, I mean, there is a, there's a positive commandment in the Torah that says, and it's given twice. It says the, the sons of Israel shall kill the sons of Amalek on sight in every generation. Wow. Amalek was this enemy that attacked Israel when they were leaving Egypt. Mm -hmm. They would raid at the edge of the camp. They would kill people and steal and so forth. And, and God gave a positive commandment. The moment you see him, go kill him. That commandment still remains today. So the question is, who's Amalek today? Can I give you a quick answer? Please. Hamas terrorist. Did you know that the Palestinians and those guys, they're descendants of Esau, which is descendants of Amalek? Wow. Most they people are don't know that. Yeah, I know. They, they don't know the Bible history. Mm -hmm. They're the descendants of Amalek. So I have a positive commandment. Once they're identified as being Amalek, once they're identified as being an enemy to me, that I have the right to self-defense. Yes. And I have a positive commandment because, by the way, even if I were to meet some Hamas terrorists, say, this afternoon, I'm, I'm not inclined to harm them. Right. You know, I, oh, he announces, oh, he's a Hamas terrorist. I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm, I'm here in Oklahoma. No, I'm not inclined to try to harm them. Right. But I will 
if they attempt to harm me. Sure. And I'm, I have a positive commandment from God that I'm supposed to do that. That's very interesting. Most people don't realize that there is that positive commandment, so to speak, of if you identify Amalek, that you must get rid of them. Well, the, one of the other things they don't know, that the, God teaches us how to be just. Yes and to have justice in our lives. But he also instructs that you have to do it in a just way. You, you don't get to just arbitrarily exact justice on something. It has to be done in a just way. So there's a lot of conditions that have to be satisfied. There's a lot of things that have to be known and confirmed before you can do that. In the case of nations fighting nations, there has to be an attack. There has to be, and there has to be a response of declaring war, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And and then you have a, a real conflict in, in it, and then you have war. Yes. At the personal level, you have to have been attacked. You have to have been assaulted in some way, shape, or form. The most typical answer here is if the guy is standing outside of your house, you're not justified in killing him, even right. though you feared him. But if he enters your house, now you are justified in the action that you would be taking. So it has to be done in a just way. So it's not just seeking justice. It has right. to be done in a just way. Just like going back to the that commandment of thou shalt not murder. You're not going to just murder him because you know it's a, a bad guy. Let's just say it that way. But if then he attempts to enter your home or your space. To assault you. To, to do harm. Then, the, then we're... Justified. Yeah. And one of the things but, legally they'll ask you, did you feel your life was threatened? If your yes. life was threatened and you said that, now that's called justification for self-defense. Yes. Good. I hope that clears that up. It certainly did answer some questions for By me. By the way, Israel is not taking revenge against the no. Palestinians. They're bringing justice to the Hamas terrorists. Yes. They're carrying out justice. Yes. Yes, indeed. We have a follow-up question okay. to the to the one that we had on last week's program about the difference between this action that's going on right now being Psalms 83 or the Ezekiel 38. And you clarified that and said, yes, Psalms 83 is happening. We have to watch for the invasion from the north for it to qualify basically as being Ezekiel 38. But there was another piece that you spoke about that some have had follow-up questions too, and that is in part of that question, the person was saying it couldn't be Ezekiel 20 or 38 because there's not enough time, that it would be seven years of cleanup and the battlefield and all of that. And you spoke about the fact that the person might be thinking linearly and that we need to think about it in a different way. Could you elaborate on that? Well, a lot of times the way a lot of people uh, see the prophecies, they put them in linear sequence. We, we think like Greeks. Greeks think linear. Mm -hmm. And Hebrew thinking is in cycles. Yes. When we have in Hebrew, when we have a new moon, we didn't replace the other moon and put a new moon up there. We, it's just the same moon, but it's in a different cycle. It's a different phase. Mm -hmm. But we say it's new. Right. You know, the we we say that Sunday is the first day of a new week. Mm -hmm. You know, the weeks are all going on. I mean, it's not really new. It's just the cycle of things. And so coming back to uh, this issue of 
of tying into what's going on with this war and how all of that comes together. The, the prophecy says there'll be a seven-month period of burying the dead mm -hmm. and a seven-year period of burning the weapons of war. Now, nobody seems to have a problem with the seven-month thing. Right. But this, when you start saying seven years, you start messing with everybody's timeline on the prophetic end times. Yes. Is there a seven-year great tribulation? Could that be the same seven years? Uh, could it be a different seven years? You mean this seven years got to happen before we can have that? You know, so it, that that's what goes through their mind. Mm -hmm. Now, are they seven concurrent years? Mm -hmm. Or are they consecutive years? In other words, we have seven years here and then another seven years. And then, you know, are they consecutive? Or does this seven year spill into another prophecy of another set of years and it falls at the same time? Is it concurrent? Yes. We don't know. The prophecy does not give us that detail. So all we can do is watch the prophecy be fulfilled. And as time goes on and we see what transpires, then we'll be able to look back in hindsight and say, oh, that's how it fit together. Mm -hmm. And I would remind everybody that the way the prophecies are written, they're not written projecting forward they are actually written forward in time, looking back at the event. So it's describing the event after it's all taken place. And that's the reason why a lot of prophecies appear to be vague to people, because it's a summary of what is to take place, as opposed to announcing that something's going to take place. And that, keeping that clarification is essential to, I think, understanding the prophecies correctly in, in this day. Do not be concerned about the seven-year cleanup of the battlefield. It will happen. It will take place. We'll all, when it gets done, we'll all go, oh, that's what it was talking about. Oh, okay, no problem. Mm -hmm. And then as we proceed forward to the end of the age as to what is the period of time of the Great Tribulation, is there a seven-year tribulation or three-and-a-half-year tribulation? You know, one of the, my favorite phrases, time will tell. <laughs> when we get there, we'll, we'll all be we'll experts. Yes. We'll all be experts on exactly what that prophecy said. Yes. And by the way, when we get there and we get done, we'll look back and say, the prophecy said it perfectly. It said it exactly right. to see it. Yeah. Right. But it's usually speaking as a summary of what is going to take place as opposed to announcing what is going to take place. I see. So hopefully that's cleared up that piece. Okay. People have a lot of questions now that we have this action going on. There's a lot of questions coming forward about the events, the the areas that are happening. We know now that the front has opened up uh, in the north. And you have spoken also about clarifying when, when this transitions into what possibly could be the Ezekiel 38 could you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, there's a very specific part about the Ezekiel 38 prophecy. It talks about the attack from the north, that it comes down into the mountains of Israel, mm -hmm. and that there are arrows and there are bows. And uh, the arrows get knocked down and the bows are knocked out of their hand, and that the enemy is able to penetrate to the mountains of Israel. The mountains of Israel right now in Israel, that's the West Bank regions. Yes. the Judean and Sumerian mountains. By the way, those also have Jewish settlements in there. 
Mm -hmm. uh, which the prophecy refers to as unwalled villages, and that's exactly what they are. Mm -hmm. The settlements in the mountains of Israel are unwalled villages. Yes. And so that's the nature of the attack. Now, at the moment, we have some Palestinians in the West Bank, and they are harassing the settlers. The settlers are trying to defend themselves from it. But we have an army up to the north in the case of Hezbollah mm -hmm. and the Syrians, and if they were to come across the border, and by the way, at the moment they're shooting at each other, if they were to come across the border, their number one goal would be to penetrate and get to where the Palestinian areas are. They would try to get to the mountains of Israel. And they only have a short span mm -hmm. to cross the border and to get down into the Sumerian mountains. And that's what the, the prophecy describes. It describes a northern battle coming down into the mountains of Israel. And then that's when God steps up and there's a great victory for Israel at that point. At the moment, we have the Gaza conflict, which is down south, but up on the northern border, they're shooting at each other on a daily basis. Yes. Now, there's a lot of people that are getting ready for this. The, the, the great fear is that that's about to happen. But maybe by the time this thing is broadcast, it's already happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how close and that, what the anticipation is right now. So that's the reason why we're watching that very closely, because if this is Ezekiel 38, 39, that's what we're going to see. Now, once we see that, exactly as the prophecy has said, and we're anticipating it and so forth, then we're going to be able to step back and say, okay, great. This is what the prophecy is. Now, let's look at what the end result is. Mm -hmm. And that's what will take us into the rest of the chapter, the description of what happens in the aftermath of the war. Now we get to the seven-month battle burial, the seven-year battle cleanup. Then, then we'll see those details. But yes. we got to see these other things first. The battle has to happen. The battle has the to happen first. Yes. So in coming across the northern border, then would they be marching through the enemy, marching through the settlements? In Judeans. They would have to go through established Israeli communities mm -hmm. up in the northern part. We're talking about the elements that are west of Galilee. Yes. We're talking about along the coast, you know, and so forth, to penetrate down into. They have to go through the valley of Jezreel. Yes. And, you know, the big valley to get down to where they're at. Now, how many of them will be successful in doing that? I do know this, that Hezbollah boasts that they have a 100,000-man armory. So they could, they could be, that could be a very serious problem for Israel. Yes. Uh, the, by the way, there's only 30,000 fighters in Gaza. Yeah. And there's 30,000 uh, Israeli troops down there fighting them. How many more troops uh, do we have to defend against the northern border? I'm, I'm not sure I know exactly what the number is, but I do know this. If they come across the border, Israel has got a major problem. Yes. Is it possible they could penetrate all the way down into the middle of Israel? I would have to say, yeah, you know, anything's possible. But in particular, the prophecy says that's what will happen. Yes. So for that reason, I believe that's probably what will happen, according to what the prophecy says. Yes. We will certainly all keep our eyes on Israel. We'll keep our eyes on that northern border. And thank you, Monty, for that insight. I know that we'll have many more questions coming, so we'll be ready for those. That's all the time we have for today. If you would like the opportunity to have your question answered on this program, Good Questions Real Answered with Monty Judah, send those questions by email to qa 
at lionlamb.co. And we'll try to get your questions on the air and certainly try to answer them at least by email as well. We hope you'll join us each week as Monty answers your questions. Monty, would you close us in prayer? Yeah, Father, thank you again for the time that we've had together to answer some of the questions. Thank you for our brethren sending the questions in. We know the questions coming in are on the hearts of lots of people. And we hope, Lord, by your spirit, we'll give answer to bring clarity and understanding to not only how to observe our faith, but also the events that are happening in our day and how to watch what's happening with understanding. We thank you for our redemption. We thank you for the Messiah that you sent for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And we'll see you next week.